Welcome to Maxworth Insights. In this episode, Maxworth's managing partner, Steve Worthy, talks with Dr. Tom Oliver about physician recruitment, benefit plan communication, staff alignment, and physicians' top retirement concerns. Dr. Tom Oliver has been a private practicing urologist in Winchester, Virginia, and on staff at Winchester Medical Center since 1988. He was a medical staff leader in 2005 when he played a critical role in the establishment of Winchester Medical's Deferred Compensation for Call Plan, which was created with the help of Maxworth Consulting Group and Horty Springer Law Firm. Dr. Oliver received his MD and completed his urology residency at Queen's University School of Medicine in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. Dr. Oliver's unique perspective provides insights to the challenges of recruiting in today's market. We hope you enjoy this conversation as much as we did. Dr. Oliver, I'd like to begin by just sharing with you uh, what we uh, have read. Uh, According to the New England Journal of Medicine, 25% of physicians leave their practice within the first three years. Uh, There's an awful lot written on this subject of uh, physician shortages and the impact of physicians leaving practices uh, shortly after joining them. Does this uh, statistic resonate with you uh, based on your personal experience and what you've been observing in your community there in Winchester? Why, yes, Steve. Um, It has been our experience here. We're not much different than other places. The 25% number is higher than what I would have expected, but I don't doubt it. Um, In general, physicians, if they're going to leave a new practice, they leave in the first 18 months to three years. That sounds about right. Um, And in my experience, they decide fairly quickly if it's a good fit or not uh, before they decide to uh, stay or move on. It's usually been social reasons that I've noticed. It's arriving in a town and deciding it's not the cultural fit that you like. It's not the community that you envisioned um, or some similar uh, social event that causes people to uh, uh, move away and choose another place. What, what about attraction or recruiting doctors to your community? Is it just as challenging uh, to recruit physicians today as it always been? Or do you think that uh, in today's culture, it might be more difficult than historically it has been? I think it's more difficult now, actually, because, and you can defined historically with five years, 10 years, or 30 years. But uh, I think it's overall more difficult today than it was even a few years ago, and certainly more than 10 or 20 years ago, in that you're recruiting on a national playing field. You're not competing with just the other practices or communities in your region. You're not recruiting from your local university programs. You're recruiting on a national uh, playing field. And that means that our city of 25,000 people is competing with major metropolitan areas and larger cities in the 100 to 500,000 population uh, centers. Uh, 
And that makes it tough for us in a smaller place uh, because we just don't have the amenities that a large city or major metropolitan area has. So simply because mobility and communication are so much easier now, people have much wider choice and are much more willing to go greater distances. Uh, it also means you can't use local compensation as a comparator. You're using nationwide compensation benchmarks as comparators. Uh, and you can't say, well, that's the way we've always done, always done it here. It has to be competitive with, with what the best practices in the country are doing. You can't just do what you used to do in the Shenandoah Valley anymore. Well, let's help the audience understand a little bit about your community as I uh, listen to your description there. Uh, uh, the size of uh, your community, uh, the hospital that you're affiliated with, give us some understanding of, uh, of the demographics uh, of Winchester and, and Winchester Medical Center, just to put that into perspective, if you don't mind. So Winchester is a city of a little less than 30,000 people in the northern Shenandoah Valley. Surrounding counties have another 100,000 people. And we have a first-class tertiary care medical center at Winchester Medical Center that is one of our biggest attractions for bringing recruits to Winchester. Uh, but it's still a smaller community. It's a wonderful community, a great place to raise your family, but it doesn't have the amenities of a bigger town, uh, a, a town uh, like Charleston, uh, a town like Boston or uh, Raleigh or Charlotte that has professional sports and have every restaurant chain and every shopping mall. And we just don't have all of those big city amenities. And if someone's interested in those things, they're not going to come here. Like Oliver, uh, owning uh, your own practice, uh, and uh, I know you recruit to your practice and have recruited to your practice over the years. Uh, what strategies have you used in your practice to uh, distinguish uh, your practice in the marketplace uh, and um, and perhaps uh, some differentiators uh, when it comes to benefits, uh, et cetera, that you might have uh, used over the years or even recently to attract and keep uh, members of your own practice. So the way we recruit now is vastly different than we did 10 years ago. The model we used previously with contacting people you know and talking to your program directors in the region uh, and offering people uh, starting salaries that are relatively modest and plan to work up, that's gone by the wayside. It's no longer effective at all. Uh, we don't do that at all anymore. We know that we're competing uh, across the country we need to have competitive wages, competitive compensation packages and benefit packages that we simply cannot provide as a solo, not a solo, as a single specialty group practice. We're a group of seven neurologists. Uh, we have three APCs, uh, 10 providers. Uh, 
but we're not able to financially support the type of attractive uh, compensation package that a bigger city and a bigger practice can offer. So we entered into a cooperative model with our hospital system uh, and are using a leasing agreement to help support that that allows us to recruit. Without the leasing agreement, without the hospital system support with uh, basically uh, salary compensation packages, uh, we would not be able to recruit at all. We tried and failed for some years on our own, learned the hard way that didn't work anymore. And now we are able to get uh, first rate comp guarantees from the hospital system with very competitive compensation and benefit packages. The things that we use to make ourselves stand out we, that candidates find very interesting are the financial stability that we get with our leasing group at the hospital. We keep the hospital at arm's length in terms of day-to-day -day management of our practice, even month-to-month -month management of our practice. We own and operate ourselves, um, but are financially linked with the hospital. Um, that link gives us financial stability. It allows us to offer those favorable compensation packages. And um, the interesting benefit plan that we have available is call pay. All of our candidates are interested in our call pay arrangement. They find it unique. They've never heard of it before. Um, some of them are frankly a little bit frightened by it for all the usual reasons because they don't understand deferred compensation. Um, and it, once they get the hang of it, understand how our deferred compensation for call program works, they realize it's a very powerful tool and it becomes a strength and a selling point for us because relatively few places use it. Um, our, big, our last selling point that we use isn't so much a benefit plan or compensation, but just we're very lucky to have a tertiary care, a first-class tertiary care medical center in a small town in a beautiful location and, uh, with a, a, an old-fashioned small community that's a great place to raise your family. That's our biggest selling point. Uh, and then the compensation and benefit plans are secondary, but very important candidates are always intrigued by their quaint community, but what they really want to see is that term sheet and what their comp and benefits are going to be. So, Dr. Oliver, the leasing arrangement that you have, your practice group has with uh, Winchester Medical Center, uh, is that uh, unique to uh, your clinic, your practice group, or is that a fairly common arrangement that the hospital is making with uh, others? Or do you know, or, or would you prefer not to say that's fine? But uh, in other words, I'm asking how commonplace are these, uh, are, are these leasing arrangements to help private practice groups be more competitive on a national landscape? I don't know any actual statistics or numbers on how common this sort of leasing, leasing arrangement is. 
but I suspect it's a minority. I think it's a small minority of practice regions because many urologists, and I don't really speak to urology really, but uh, urologists tend to be either employed directly by a healthcare system or they're in private practice with a standard private practice uh, model. And we're kind of a hybrid. Um, our urology practice was the first practice uh, to develop a lease agreement with our hospital system. We were the, 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 the model, we hammered out the details for the first time. It's been revised and improved as the hospital has recruited other practices into the same leasing arrangement. And I don't even know how many practices are in the lease agreement now, but it's multiple. It has expanded fairly rapidly since we started, I think, five, six years ago now. Um, it's proven to be a very nice blend between the autonomy one has with running your own practice, which we do day to day, month to month. Uh, once a month, we meet with the administrators and uh, have a one hour session running down our uh, business parameters. And then they leave us alone for the rest of the month and we do our thing. Uh, the biggest benefit to us has been financial security uh, and being insulated somewhat from the vagaries of uh, changes in insurance status and so forth. That's been the major benefit. The single largest benefit has been the ability to compete on a national scale with recruiting. We simply couldn't do it without it. From the hospital's perspective, uh, could you give us a couple of uh, thoughts on uh, your thoughts on a couple of key benefits that arrangement uh, has for the hospital? Physician retention, number one. And I think for the hospital, the lease agreement, once it got built, once we went through the, the effort of building the lease agreement, I think running a leased practice is easier than running an employed practice because they don't have to do anything. Um, well, that's a little bit facetious. They do have to do something, but we take care of the day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month decision-making um, with their approval um, and their input. Um, and we come up with some helpful suggestions and we are integrated very tightly with the hospital in a manner that is beneficial to us and to them. Neither, neither party, the hospital or us, is going to do anything that's going to harm the other party. We're going to come up with suggestions and changes that are mutually beneficial because when things go well for them, they go well for us and vice versa. Uh, so they like it because it's been useful for physician retention, physician recruitment, and it's... Uh, been good for them, I think, in terms of building their physician enterprise and expanding it and making more services available to the healthcare system uh, and its uh, coverage region. What benefit plan features do you believe are most important to physicians? So there are two two approaches to that. One is the brand new physician 
who wants their benefit plan to be generous and portable. And that's about as far as they think about it. They want it to be a generous benefit plan and they want to be able to take it with them if they leave it because they're not committed yet. They just arrived. They don't know if they're going to like it or not. They don't know if they're like the hospital or the practice and the community or if their spouse will like the community. So they just want to make sure they have a generous compensation plan and they'd like to be able to make sure they can take it with them if they go anywhere. Um, either that or they'll leave before the benefit plan even kicks in sort of thing. Once you've decided to stay, you want your benefit plan to be generous and you want your benefit plan, again, still be portable so you can take it with you uh, should you have to move. And it should be easy to understand. <laughs> Only three things I can think of that physicians actively think about. A recent Jackson Physician Search Survey found that 70% of healthcare administrators say that they have a retention program in place at their organization. But only 17% of physicians say the same. This suggests there may be a lack of communication surrounding benefit plans for physicians. Do you think physicians are typically aware of the benefit plans, why they should participate in them, and how they work? So there's always room for better communication. That goes without saying. I think you can always say that things can be communicated better, and that's that's apple pie. Better communication is always available. <clears throat> Why so few physicians are aware of there being a retention plan suggests to me that it's probably the same 17% of physicians who pay very much attention to their paycheck and benefit plan and so forth on a monthly basis. Anyways, just personal experience, the vast majority of physicians devote their lives to their professional life. They go to work, they take call, they operate, they run the clinic. And once a month, a paycheck comes into their account and they don't pay attention to their benefit plan or anything else until once a year when the office manager or their accountant or their spouse or somebody sits them down and says, hey, this is what's going on this year. Make sure you put your max in for your uh, pension plan and you pay attention for about a day and a half and then you start up your clinical practice again. So I think most physicians just aren't oriented that way and don't think about it very much. Um, common tune you hear is, I just want to practice medicine. I don't want to be running a business. So mm. I, I don't think it's so much that there's been a lack of communication. Uh, we get emails, we get flyers, uh, but we are, it's just not our first priority as physicians. That's, that's my old fashioned approach to it. I just don't think they pay a lot of attention to it. Are physicians uh, generally wary are skeptical of deferring compensation? And if so, why? Uh, do you have any thoughts on maybe how a hospital could overcome this? So wary and skeptical are the kindest terms I would use for that. 
Um, physicians have, in general, a very strong skepticism for hospital administrative projects in general, hospital administrators in general, lawyers in general. Uh, we're here to help you type plans um, because they've heard it a lot. Um, they've just heard it a lot. And they know that they're devoted to their practice and their patients. There's a sense oftentimes that hospitals and hospital systems are just using their physicians as employees, not partners, regardless of their private or employee status. And basically don't trust the man, so to speak. So yeah, there's a major trust issue and that takes a long time to remedy. Um, perceived slights can take years or decades to go away. And the administrators, even the most kind-hearted, well-intended administrator has an uphill, uphill battle facing uh, her or him uh, trying to uh, approach physicians with a new and improved deferred compensation plan. So in terms of physicians being wary or skeptical of deferring compensation uh, into a benefit plan, perhaps offered by a hospital, how could a hospital overcome this skepticism? For a hospital or a hospital administrator to overcome that skepticism is going to have to be by demonstrating goodwill, demonstrating some generosity. Don't, don't uh, nickel and dime. Uh, it'll have to be a generous plan. It'll have to be a transparent plan. It'll have to be easily understood. There'll need to be some type of executive summary that can be written and read in a manner that a lay person can understand how it works. And very importantly, it'll have to, I think it needs to be administered, operated, and uh, available to the physician through a source outside of the hospital's administration itself. And that's because the physicians will always be skeptical that any deferred compensation monies will be there for them in the distant future. And if the hospital has control over their account, uh, and their monies, um, the physician will just simply not believe that the hospital will keep its hands off of that money over 10 or 20 years. So the money has to be somewhere outside the hospital in a trust uh, and needs to be managed by a third party administrator that is not owned or operated by the hospital or the hospital system. Um, and there needs to be somebody outside of administration that the physician can contact to learn about their uh, account, work with their account, and uh, uh, make changes to their account. If you have to go through the hospital and the hospital administrator, the, they know that the hospital actually controls your money. So your money has to be controlled by someone outside the facility. 
Today, uh, there's a considerable uh, mixed medical staff at every hospital. Uh, we're reading uh, statistics that say that as much as uh, 50% of the medical staff could perhaps be employed by the hospital. As a private practicing physician, do you, do you sense any uh, discrepancy uh, uh, between an employed physician and an independent physician uh, in terms of their being uh, uh, offered uh, similar uh, amenities at the hospital? Uh, are, it, are, are the two groups uh, somewhat divided in terms of uh, perception of benefits and value uh, according to their affiliation with the hospital? Yes, there will be differences between employed physicians and private physicians, uh, and there are advantages to both settings. I think they balance out overall. There are, I'm sure, some advantages to being employed. I'm not employed. I haven't been employed by a hospital, so I, I, I don't know what our local hospital compensation model and benefit plan looks exactly for our employed physicians. Um, I know what mine is. I'm happy with mine. Um, and as near as I can tell, it's comparable uh, to similar urologists, if not uh, a little better. Do I feel like our employed physicians are being treated better than I am? Perhaps in some ways, yes. Uh, but in other ways, no. Uh, and there's always a price to be paid for those uh, compensation benefits. Uh, you may get paid a little bit more, but then you'll have less autonomy somewhere else that I enjoy. Um, and those are trade-offs that physicians are uh, aware of. The two groups of physicians will have to be treated basically the same. Otherwise, the disparities will become dangerously disruptive. Um, so there, there can't be too many major differences between the two groups of physicians. Overall, how concerned do you believe physicians are about their ability to save for retirement? Extremely concerned. I think it's probably one of their biggest worries uh, is being able to save for their retirement, particularly if you're in private practice. Uh, if, if you're employed, um, there are uh, retirement plans not available to a private practice physician. Private practice physician is basically limited to their 401k with very limited annual, relatively limited annual uh, contributions. Being able to save for your retirement long-term is a major problem for physicians. That's one of the reasons why we lean heavily on financial advisors as a group. Uh, we're not particularly well trained in how to do this at any point in our professional lives. And we all have to kind of figure it out ourselves uh, if you're not in an employed model. Is it important for a practice group or hospital employer to provide resources that would help a physician? better plan for their retirement or financial future in general? I think it would be a major 
asset for a hospital or hospital system to make it available to their physicians, all their physicians, a financial planning resource. Again, it has to be outside the hospital. So it would be a matter of the hospital system saying, hey, here are the following approved financial planning resources that we will make available to you as a part of your uh, work here at our hospital. You have free access to the following financial planners, pick one. And that will eliminate the skepticism and wariness of the physicians because it will be an outside financial planner and they can choose among a menu of who they want to use, not being concerned that it's the, an inside job from the hospital. So yes, having that sort of concierge service of financial planning available to all physicians would be a worthwhile asset. Dr. Oliver, what advice would you give healthcare administrators who are in the process of designing or evaluating uh, their retention plans for physicians? Make sure your plan is easy to understand. Make sure it's very transparent. It needs to be as generous as you can possibly make it. And it needs to encourage long-term relationship. Um, part of that encouragement would be making it generous and sincere. So you, you stay with us for this period of time, and you're a good citizen. We're going to reward that with this sort of compens deferred compensation. Um, and and in, in whatever model you st structure, it needs to be generous, fair, and open. Uh, and easily understood. Dr. Oliver, as we sit here today, we're, we're at a point in time where you are approaching the eve of your retirement. As, as you consider uh, your career, looking back over your career, what would Dr. Oliver today want to tell the young Dr. Oliver that may be just out of medical school or residency looking for a place to practice medicine? That's a really hard question because I've only been in one place. I came to Winchester in 1988 and I've been here since. Mind you, I did change practices at the 18 month mark, just like so many people do. And I changed practices over compensation and benefits and call. Um, so yes, I've done that. Uh, what I would tell a young self would be to learn more about compensation and benefits and contracts before signing one. When I look back now, I cannot believe how completely naive and ignorant I was because I'd never paid one whit of attention to contractual matters at all prior to joining. I just trusted my seniors and my professors and I trusted my new employers. Um, and it just wasn't important part of life to me. I am amazed at how well-informed 
and knowledgeable the people that we interview now are. These young men and women are very astute uh, in several orders of magnitude better informed than I was. So yes, I would tell myself as a, a new candidate uh, in 1987 to read what a contract should hold and read what a benefit package should hold. I had no idea. Thanks for listening to this episode of Maxworth Insights. We'd like to thank Dr. Oliver for his time and sharing his perspective on recruiting and retention physicians in today's market. For more on healthcare compensation and benefit strategies, please visit maxworthconsulting.com.